Let's have prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the way you've guided us. And Lord, as we enter into this 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, give us understanding, give us wisdom. Above all, give us commitment to thee. Bless us, we ask, in Jesus' name, and give us thy guidance. Amen. I wanted to briefly review with you what was discussed in chapter 20. Chapter 20 was packed with a lot of things, okay? So we hit a lot of territory. And John said that he saw uh, thrones in heaven, and they that sat upon them, they were all set, and the judgment was given unto them. And he saw the souls of them that were beheaded for a witness of Jesus and the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their forehead or in their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is actually uh, taking place at the first resurrection, or before the first resurrection here, because those who had received the mark of the beast, that's behind them now. Christ has come. He has redeemed them. This is how they are able to get to heaven. And then it says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. As such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. They are reigning with Christ. Now, it's interesting. What are they? They're going to reign on earth too, by the way, because... These folks, don't forget there was a vast multitude that also went to heaven, not just 144,000. And when the Lord returns, he's going to have a government on the earth. And they will be a part of that government that he has. And notice it says, an angel that had the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he binds and seals Satan for a thousand years so that he cannot deceive the nations until he is released at the end of that time. Those who say that we are already in the millennium have a problem because then they have to explain why there's evil in the world because Satan apparently is not bound and they just haven't discovered that yet. At the end of the millennium, Satan is released for a little season. We don't know how long that is. It could be, some say, as much as 100 years. I don't know how long it will be. But it will be sufficient for him, Satan, to organize the wicked who had been resurrected in the second resurrection and mobilize them, getting them ready to attack the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It says the great multitude is gathered for the battle of Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog is actually a resumption of the Battle of Armageddon because they tried to kill off God's people before Christ came, but Christ interrupted them. And so there's a thousand-year gap when there's no fighting going on. Why? Because the wicked are dead and the righteous have been taken to heaven. But now when the resurrected wicked come up, they come up with the same thoughts they went down with the same murderous thoughts. And when Christ descends with the holy city, 
Now they think they're back in business because Satan deceives them into thinking that they can take that city. And so this is why it's called the Battle of Gog and Magog. It's really a continuation of that last battle. And it also uh, pointed out that John saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. We are, even today, in human courts, we are judged by the law books. There's a standard. God has a standard. And his scriptures that he has given us, that will be our standard. The commandments of God will be his standard. Now, notice it says books are being kept. There's the book of life. There's the book of deeds. There's the book of remembrance. The Bible mentions several different books. How many he has? I don't know. Are they going to be books like we're used to? Or are they going to be computer animated? What are they going to be? We don't know, but I'm sure he's up on technology. And he'll have what he needs for the job. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. This is Christ. And when Christ came... The clouds rolled back and the old world was destroyed by his coming. And they were judged, every man according to their works. Now notice, we are saved by grace because of our faith. But we are judged by our works. Because by their fruit you shall know them. The works will demonstrate whether or not that faith is sincere or not. And the resurrected wicked will try to take the holy new Jerusalem but a fire will fall from heaven. And this will be the consuming fire, the Gehenna fire. The wicked, Satan and the false prophet, are devoured by the fire from God. But not until the devil and the false prophet are tormented day and night as long as life lasts. They use the term forever. Forever is an indefinite period of time. Your forever may be different from her forever, as long as life lasts. This is the second death, or the death of the damned, the death of condemnation. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The last thing to be destroyed will be death. And that will not happen until Satan himself is destroyed and consumed. So he'll be apparently the last one that will burn. So that leads us into Revelation 21. Now in chapter 21, the wicked, they're behind us now. What we're looking forward to here, we're looking at the scene of that third coming of Jesus when he comes with the city down from heaven. And as we look, our eyes are taken up. And John says, I looked, where? Up into heaven. And what did he see? And he says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. The new earth that was made didn't have a sea on it. Now, that doesn't mean 
that it didn't have lakes and you know ponds and streams. It means that it didn't have the vast oceans. Do you realize that, what is it, 70-some percent of our planet is made up of water, oceans. It separates people. Some of you may have relatives in a distant country. And waters and mountains, these things separate people. And they take up an awful lot of space. But can you imagine what it's going to be like in the new earth? A lot of things will be no more. There'll be no more sea. There'll be no more high mountains. Doesn't mean there won't be hill and mountains to climb. I hope so because I like climbing mountains. But think of some other things there won't be. Won't be any cemeteries. Won't be any prisons. Don't need any hospitals. Those of you in the medical field, you'll be on the unemployment line. What about churches? Preachers will be out of business. Who are they going to preach to? They're all converted. You see, and just stop at the garbage men, dumps. These things will be no more. What about deserts? You know, a lot of land is taken up on that. But if all of these things are, are gone, think of how much more room there'll be for each one of us. You know, you may have an acre of land right now, but hey, you may have a whole section of uh, in the new earth when all these things are made new. Now notice it says the new heavens. Apparently, it's not just talking about the atmosphere. But we have reason to believe that there may be a new order of our solar system. We do have reason to believe from what scripture tells us that at the coming of Christ that the earth will again reel on its axis. Last time we have reason to believe that happened was at the flood. Before the flood, we didn't have these vast temperatures and uh, seasons that we had before. It was more uniform. But apparently, the earth axis shifted. Now, when it says reeling on its axis like a drunken man, the scripture says, can you imagine the effect that would have on the tides? Because the sun... And the moon, especially the moon, has the biggest effect on tides. It draws it by its gravity. And let's say there's a high tide here where Bob is. And then all of a sudden, the earth changes axis. And now there's a low tide. Where's all that water going to go? You talk about tsunamis. The islands of the sea can be easily washed away. And so there's a lot of geological activity as well as astronomical activity going on. Yes, ma'am. For the sake of the recording, she saw on a program that before the flood, there was one large continent that broke up. That could be. You look at the earth, it looks like a jigsaw puzzle. You could take Africa and stick it right in that gap around the uh, Caribbean and, uh, you know, it fits nicely around North and South America. How much of this took place, we don't know. But we do know that the waters from the flood that have receded into the earth, we are told that that water is being reserved for the end times. Can you imagine if you take that water and you let it seep down through the cracks in the rocks, 
And as it goes down far enough, as you get closer to the center of the earth, it's hot, right? That's where the lava is. What's going to happen to that water? It's going to turn to steam, right? And when that steam starts pushing down the rocks, what do you think you get? Earthquakes, you see. So there's a lot of things that could be. We've got to be careful we're not too uh, dogmatic on this. But there's a lot of things that could be and could have been in the time of the flood when the fountains of the deep burst open. You look at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and you see it looks like a zipper running right down the middle of the, the ocean. Could that be where it broke open? If so, all of this water shooting way up in the air, it would force rocks up. And those rocks could come down, causing all kinds of damage. And are we going to see things like that again? Perhaps. But the new earth, when he creates it again, there will no longer be a debate between evolutionists and creationists. We weren't here to see the way God made it the first time. But this time, if you're inside of the holy city, you will get to see how he created the world. And you, your answer will come. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? You see. Did the acorn create the oak tree? Or did God create a full-grown oak tree from which the acorn came? You see. We'll have that opportunity again. But anyway, getting back to verses 2 through 8, it tells us about the descending of the holy city. As John looks up, he sees this coming down. He gives a testimony, an eyewitness testimony. He says, and I, John, saw, and by the way, he identifies himself again as the author of this. And he says, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now, he's not talking about the one over in Israel. I've been to the one over in Israel. That's not the one he's talking about. This is the one Abraham was looking for, the holy city. And it's coming down from God out of heaven. It's up there. It's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Remember when Jesus left the earth in John 14, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. He's going to get things ready in the holy city so that we can be a part of it. And we will be the jewels. We will be the gems. We're also the witnesses, by the way. But we're also the, the uh, jewels in that. And who is the husband? The husband is Christ himself. And notice what it says in verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Remember that it has always been the desire of God to be with his people. The earth, when he created the earth, he made a sanctuary on earth. What was that sanctuary? The Garden of Eden. That was the appointed place where he would meet with his people. And he would have the opportunity to fellowship with them. And when that didn't work out and they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, 
then we find that there was this gap between. But then along comes Moses. Well, actually, in the time of Noah, that ark was actually Noah's sanctuary. You see, it saved him in the storm. Later on, along comes the tabernacle. And what is it? God comes down to be with men. And then the temple that followed that. But they were destroyed. And so what happens? The first temple is destroyed. The second temple is destroyed. And what is the third temple? It's Jesus himself. Jesus is the third temple. And we find that You know, a lot of people want to build a third temple in Jerusalem. We're going to see in a moment, he is the tabernacle. And we find that, what is he? He's God with us, Emmanuel. He is Christ on earth. And then, what does he do? He goes back to that heavenly tabernacle. Let's see what it says further. It says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things have passed away. Now, we will learn the lessons of this life. But we won't have the pain and the agony. As a matter of fact, we may even forget a lot of the hard times we went through. But yet, we will have learned the lesson that it doesn't pay to sin. They have passed away. No more cancer. No more death. Man, that'll be a wonderful thing, won't it? Look at verse 5. And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now, who is called the true and faithful one? It's Jesus. So really, it's writing a transcript of what he's all about. And he said unto me, it is done. Now, in the New King James, I, what does it, does it say it is finished or it is done for verse 6? Let me look at the New King James. No, they use it as done. Basically, at the cross, didn't he say that? It is finished? That he was the lamb. Then after he was done in the tabernacle, He said, it's done. It's finished. Now, he's saying, as the judge of the earth, it is done. It's behind us. And now we can go forward to the happy ever after. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is the A and the Z of the Greek alphabet. Okay? I'm the beginning and the end. He is the originator of the plan of salvation. And he's the conclusion of it. It's summarized in him. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. Christ gives us that that spiritual water of life. Look at verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. Now notice that. It's only those who are overcomers that will inherit that kingdom. So what does that say? Should we be battling against our sins? Should we be seeking to purify our lives? 
there is a faith works relationship. And whatever the temptations we have, whatever the shortcomings we have, the negative habits, we have an obligation to overcome that, those. You see, if a person is hung up on drinking, God wants him to overcome that. If a person has an immoral life, God says, get over it. Gain the victory. And then I'll go to meddling. If you've got a sweet tooth, like I do, what is the Lord saying? You better work on that. You need to overcome it. Why? Because if there is one sin in your life, the devil's going to try to get a hold of that and use it against you to keep you out of the kingdom. But if we surrender these to Christ, ask his forgiveness, and cooperate with him, then we can overcome them. And it says, and I will be his God. I will be his pilot, not his co-pilot. I will be his pilot, the one who guides in his life, and you will be my son. So to be a son or a daughter of God is to be an overcomer. Those who do not overcome are not entitled to that, that uh, honor. And notice what it says here in verse 8. It says, but the fearful. Now, I know you, we're all afraid of one thing or another. Some people are afraid of spiders or snakes or whatever. That's not what it's talking about. These are the cowards who are unwilling to trust God. They don't believe him. And they're afraid of God. They're afraid of overcoming what people will think and say of them. And the unbelieving. Now remember we said in the original language the word for belief is faith. The unfaithed. Those who don't have faith in God. And the abominable. That's something that makes God sick. It's usually associated with idolatry. And adultery. And immorality, they're interchangeable terms in the Bible. The murderers, the whoremongers, that would include also pornography and the books that you see on the stands. The sorcerers, those sorcerers are those who believe in magic, witchcraft. Uh, actually, they try to uh, use potions and magic, and uh, also it has a tendency to incorporate those who try to communicate with the dead, too. The idolaters and all liars. Ooh. You know, God is colorblind. He doesn't know the difference between a black lie and a white lie. To him, it's still a lie, right? That's why he says we don't need to give oaths and expletives when we say something. It should simply be yes or no. Some people say, well, by such and such, I'll do this. Yeah, we don't need all that. We just have to say yes or no. And it says, they shall have a part in the lake which burneth for, uh, with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we find here that there are those who do not overcome and because they do not overcome, they will find themselves outside of the holy city. 
Now notice verses 9 through 27 now gets into a description of what that city is like. And we've talked about quite a bit of this before. But in verse 9 it says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. And he talked with me, saying, Come up hither. I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. So notice, this is one of the angels that poured out the last plagues. And he says, John, come up here. Now, whether John physically was transported to heaven or not, that's something, that's what it's saying. It's very unlikely. But in vision, he was taken to heaven. Paul makes similar statements. He says that, I was taken to the uh, third heaven. Well, I'm sure the people around him saw the physical Saul, but in his mind he was taken up there, you see. But here, whether it's physically or in vision, he's taken to uh, the, the holy city. And notice it says, I will show thee the bride... The wife's, uh, the lamb's wife. Now, the lamb, of course, is Christ. So, what is the bride of Christ? Actually, it's the holy city. It's the holy city. But the difference between a house and a home is who's in it, right? And up in the holy city, what makes it beautiful is the characters who are living in that city. And it says in verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit. Now see, he says in the spirit. It wasn't physically, but in the spirit he went there to a great and high mountain. Now, he didn't actually go up there. He went to the top of a mountain. And he's looking up at the holy city. And he showed me a great city of the holy Jerusalem. As he's going up on the mountain, He looks up and the city's on its way down. Now, the city of God is where God the Father dwells. Where that is, we don't know. It's out there. But if you live in China, it's out there. You see? Depends on which side of the globe you're on. But he sees the holy city descending. Now, I don't know if the universe is going around the throne of God. The universe does appear to be spinning around something, but they haven't determined uh, exactly what yet. But if it is the throne of God, don't you think when God comes down here, that's going to shake up uh, astronomically a few things? You see? And he sees the holy city coming down. This beautiful big city. And It comes down out of heaven. And notice in verse 11. It says, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious. Even like jasper stone, clear as crystal. I used to, in Maine, I used to go out looking for jasper. And beautiful stone. Um, There's different colors of jasper too, by the way. And but I couldn't see through it because of the impurities. Same with gold. Gold is transparent once you get all the impurities out of it. 
but it's the impurities that make it hard to see through. And notice what it says in 12. And it had a great and high, a wall great and high, and 12 gates, and all at the gates, 12 angels. Now that's interesting. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they wanted to go back into the Garden of Eden. But what did God station at the entrance? An angel with a fiery sword, right? And I'm sure they probably went all around the perimeter to try to find ways in, but every, every way was blocked by an angel. Uh, it's interesting that Ellen White mentions that uh, Satan, before he was cast down from power, uh, he still had access back and forth. And the angels of God have to present an ID card before they get in the city so that the uh, evil angels don't try to creep in. Of course, at the cross, they were, Satan was confined to the earth. But when we look in the book of Job, he apparently still had access to the United Nations, wherever that was being held. Whether it was being held up there, I don't think they want him back up there. They may have, have, it, may have had it off in uh, Andromeda somewhere, you know. But wherever it was, and it says that at the gates, 12 angels, the names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So the gates themselves, over the top or somewhere, have the name of the different tribes. There's the Judah gate, there's the Benjamin gate, there's the Simeon gate. And the redeemed of the earth, remember before they came from the 12 tribes of Israel? What does that symbolize? There are different categories of sin. You know, uh, let's take the word addiction. Well, addiction is really a category. It could be an addiction to smoking. It could be addiction to eating. It could be addiction to drugs, to sex, to uh, money. But whatever it is, that addiction has to be overcome, right? And coveting, yeah, I mean, we, we have, well, I can't get into that. That's too broad. But there are different character traits that we need to overcome. You look at the lives of the 12 patriarchs, the sons of Jacob. They had their hang-ups. Uh, what's his name? Reuben. He was immoral. His was adultery. Remember, he's the one that slept with his father's wife, you see. For that, he was demoted from being the, uh, the head of the family, and Judah was put in his place. He would have been a high priest, but he was demoted and Levi was put in his place. He would have had the double portion, but instead it was given to Joseph, who was a man who was moral. Remember with Potiphar's wife? He got out of there. That would have been Reuben. So Reuben overcame his immorality. What about Simeon? Simeon was very cruel. 
A matter of fact, he was a murderer. He's the one that plotted the destruction of the city of Shechem. And what about Levi? You know, the priests came from Levi. Levi and Simeon were in cahoots together on some of these things. And Levi had a tendency to be very cruel. You look at the priests, they were the ones that were calling for Jesus' death, weren't they? And you look at these different characters, and they all had character flaws. And as a result, they had to overcome them. And because they did, they had an entrance into the city that's named after them. And those who have overcome that similar sin will have an opportunity to go in through that gate. Now, it's also interesting that the high priest had a breastplate that he wore, right? That breastplate had how many stones on it? Twelve. That's not counting the Urim and Thummim, which were a yes or no to questions, but they represented the twelve tribes. Now, those twelve tribes, if they are represented by one of those stones then there must be a connection between those stones and the character traits, you see. This is the reason why, and I'm, gonna, I'm really going to stretch this further, this is a good reason why we shouldn't be wearing jewelry. Because if I put on amethyst, oh, it may look pretty on me, but that's supposed to be the character trait that I overcame. And maybe it isn't mine, you see. What am I doing? I'm false advertising. God's not against jewelry, but God's the one who's going to put it on us because he's going to give you whatever suits the character that you have developed, you see. That's why he says, you know, Dress plainly, dress simply, but I will make you the jewel. You will be the amethyst. You will be the uh, crystallite. You will be the um, beryl that's in the, the kingdom, you see. We become the jewels. That's why the scripture tells us that, you know that song, you know, the kids sing, uh, when he cometh, when he cometh to make up his jewels, precious jewels, we're those precious jewels. That's why the city is adorned like the bride coming for the marriage. Christ marries the, the honeymoon cottage as well as those that are in it. Anyway, it says on the east side, three gates. On the north side, three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. I wonder in the Garden of Eden if they had that many entrances in. I don't know. Of course you realize it's just Adam and Eve. I don't think they needed too many entrances in. But nonetheless, in this holy city, we find that there's three on each side. If you remember when we had the uh, slide that showed the way the tribes of Israel were laid out. There were how many on each side? 
There were three tribes on each side, and in the middle was the tabernacle. It's laid out just like the holy city, you see. Now, it's also interesting what else it says in 14. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles. Now, does that mean every wall had 12 layers to it? Or did one gate have one foundation, one for the next one? If so, is the tribe of Simeon, are they going to have a different foundation than the tribe of Judah? Or are all of them going to be kind of like plywood, sectioned together? People have different opinions on that. But it's interesting to note that the 12 apostles had similar character traits as the patriarchs of Israel. And could it be under Judah's gate? Now Judah, remember with his experience with Tamar, you know, here's, here's Judah. Is he going to go in through a Reuben gate? You know? The foundation, they had similar characteristics. I don't know. We'll have to wait and find out. They're named after the 12 apostles. So, verse 15 says, And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. Now, this golden reed, faith, of course, faith is like gold tried in fire, right? All right, a golden reed. And what was he doing? He was measuring the city. He was measuring the character of those who would make up that city and the wall thereof. And he gives us the dimension of them. It's very interesting. And the city lieth four square. In plain words, the same size on one wall as it is on all of them. And the length is as large as the breadth and he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. 12,000 furlongs. In your Bible, do you have uh, a little marginal reference on yours? Mine, which is the New King James, um, it mentions here 12,000 furlongs. They calculated as 1,377 miles. 1,377 miles. Most of the time I've seen it, it's 1,500 miles. Now, notice what it says. The length and the breadth and the height are equal. Now, if he measured the wall thereof at 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, an angel. Now, a cubit, of course, is from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. And it was usually based on who the king was. Now, some kings are taller than others, so their their cubit would vary. An angel is very likely much bigger than a human being. So this is according to an angel's cubit that he's talking. Now, how far is 12,000 furlongs Actually, what we're talking about is 
If you go from Indiana through the Lower Peninsula, cross the bridge, through the UP, cross Lake Superior, and touch into Canada, that's probably the length of one side. Then you've got to go all the way over to Minnesota and on down again. As a matter of fact, this city has been calculated to be about the size that you could drop the state of Oregon right into the middle of it and still shake it around a little bit. That city would be big enough if it's only one floor. It could probably hold everybody on earth. If it's more than one floor, it could probably hold everybody that ever lived, you see. But don't forget, the majority of the people aren't going to make it. So that's a lot more room for everybody else. So here again, there's a lot of speculation on this. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper. So the wall is made out of jasper. The city itself was pure gold, like unto clear glass. So the streets will be made of pure gold. That's another reason why, you know, pure gold to an, to an angel Pure gold is like asphalt. Now, can't you picture Gabriel walking around with asphalt hanging from his ears? You know? Well, why should we? (laughs) But clear gold. And the foundation of the walls of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. Now, does that correspond to the first of the apostles and the first of the, the tribes? But if you look at the list of the tribes, they give them in different orders. So if you go according to birthright, then the Jasper should correspond to Reuben. But then again, are they going by the birthright or according to the blessing? They're arranged differently. So there's speculation there. The second was Sapphire. The third was Chalcedony, the fourth, an emerald, the fifth, sardonyx. Sometimes it's called just plain onyx. The sixth was sardius, that's a redstone. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. Beryl is kind of a bluish color, bluish green color. The ninth, topaz. Topaz is kind of a yellowish. The tenth, chrysoprasus. The eleventh, Jacinth, the 12th, Amethyst. Amethyst is a beautiful purple. And the royal Amethyst is a deep purple. It comes from Brazil and Maine. You can get royal Amethyst. And it's gorgeous. So it's a variety of colors. Now you will find these names, sometimes they're mentioned by different names than the ones on here. It's not that the stones have changed. It's that uh, the language has changed. Like, for instance, I don't remember which one, but one of them today we would call a diamond, you see. But they had their ancient names. If you're talking to the Hebrews, they'd have different names for them than what the, the Greeks would have for them. And so this is why there's a difference in them. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Now notice, the gates are made of pearl, but there's something interesting about it. 
It says every several gates was one pearl. So what does that mean? It means that there's a huge pearl with three different entrances. And when the saints go marching in, they go marching through their particular gate according to the character traits that they've overcome. What did Jesus call himself? He is the pearl of great price. What does that tell us? There's no other name uh, in heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The only way into the holy city is through Jesus, the pearl. The interesting thing about a pearl, these other stones we looked at, they're gemstones, they're minerals. The pearl is not a mineral. What is the pearl? The pearl is a grain of sand that was an irritation to the oyster. And the layers on it was the pearl's attempt to uh, isolate that grain that was irritating it and hoping to get rid of it. What does Jesus say about when they were building the temple? There was a cornerstone that was an irritation to them. And they tried to get rid of it, and that stone represented Jesus. And so we find the pearl is very symbolic of Jesus. He was an irritation to the unbeliever, but yet he's the only way into the kingdom. And notice it says in 22, And I saw no temple therein. Now notice, in the city itself, there's no temple. Now it doesn't mean that there won't be a temple in the new earth, but in the city itself, there's no temple. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. What was the purpose of the temple? It was to gain forgiveness of your sins, right? In the holy place, it was to gain your individual sins. The most holy place was to gain forgiveness of the corporate sins. But now his sin is behind us, you see. Jesus is the one who is the, uh, doing the forgiving in the holy place. The Father is the one who corporately accepts Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And so we find here that the Father represents the most holy place. Jesus represents the holy place. And they're in the middle of the saints as they come marching in, you see. Notice something else, too. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be in the new earth a temple, because later on it kind of refers to one. Look at verse 23. And the city had no need of sun, neither the moon, it, uh, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and... The Lamb is the light thereof. So God the Father is going to move down here. We're only going to be up in heaven for a thousand years. That's a a working vacation. Okay? Probably go sightseeing on the way up. But when that holy city comes down and everything is purified and behind us, we find that God himself will be the light of it. 
His brightness will fill it. Now, a lot of people have come to the conclusion, well, you know, in the new earth, there will be no day and night. So you won't know when Sabbath is. And you don't have to worry about sleeping or anything. That isn't what it says. It says in the city, there's no day or night. Why? Because that's where God is, right? Now, does that mean that there's no longer a moon or a sun? Not necessarily. Isaiah 66 says, from one new moon to another, we will go in to worship the Lord. From one Sabbath to another, we will go in to the holy city to worship before the Lord. So what is that saying? It's saying that there will be a city where you won't have to have the power company providing your light. God will. I can imagine the glory of God hitting these stones around the throne and radiating through them like, what what do you call those? Fiber optics? You know, where you can shoot light out in a beam? I can just imagine the the houses, the, the rooms, the mansions he went to prepare for you. I can imagine they won't have lights hanging down from the ceiling. They'll probably be lighted from the floor. That's my imagination, by the way. That's not, that's not in the Word. But can't you just imagine it? By the way, I, I hope they have shades. I know everything's transparent over there. But I hope they have a few shades there. Because in the city, apparently, we don't have to worry about going to sleep. I don't know. But there is still that day and night cycle. And Isaiah 66 brings that out. That this will be the case of the new earth. As a matter of fact, let me read it to you if I can quickly get over there. I should have put it on the slide had I been on top of things. Notice in Isaiah 66 verse, well, 21 onward. And I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. So there will be uh, an organization to God's government. And verse 22 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It probably means that when the Sabbath is over, we go out the city gates, we go out and we fill the earth. Don't forget, we get to build our own homes, the scripture tells us and plant our vineyards and uh, the like and do that. And I'm sure there's a day-night cycle because it's talked about the new moon. And then on the Sabbath, we turn around and we go back into the city. It says also about the new moon. What is the new moon? I don't think they'll have such things as Veterans Day and uh, Flag Day, but they will have a holiday once a month in addition to the Sabbaths. And this is called the new moon. What will we do? We'll come into the city and eat from the tree of life, you see. In plain words, every month we'll have a Thanksgiving dinner in the holy city. 
and then will go back out and fill the earth. Where are the little children going to have their animals? I don't think the holy city, I don't read anything that says kitties and puppies are in the holy city. But we have reason to believe in the new earth, there will be animals. Remember the lions and, and the um, wolf that are mentioned and the lamb? Well, I'm sure they're not running around the holy city. They're probably in our country home. So you'll have a townhouse and you'll have a country home. Man, you'll be wealthy, you know, right? And the city had no need of sun, neither of moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Now, God the Father is the light, but so is the Lamb. He is the glory of God. And look at verse 24. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor unto it. Man, kings are usually quite wealthy. Can you imagine King David coming in with, and King Solomon, if he's there, coming in with all their wealth and everything, and all decked out? I imagine it will be a beautiful thing. But it won't be built on pride and arrogance. It'll be built on the glory of God. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night therein. The, the gates to the holy city are open all the time because it's light in there, whether it's day or night. Look at verse 26. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. So those who have overcome, they will be the glory of that city that comes in. They will bring honor to God who gave them the victory. Verse 27, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. In the Lamb's book of life. Those are the ones that have been redeemed that have accepted the invitation of salvation. And so as we come to the end of this chapter, the highlights of it are these. John sees the new heavens and the new earth with no earthly sea. The city descends to earth from heaven as a bride prepared for her husband and for the wedding. God will personally dwell with men on earth where there will be tears no more. Again, he says, it is done. It's finished. It's behind us. Those who are living with him are the overcomers. Those who did not overcome moral sins or character flaws are designated to be lost. The holy city approximately from 1377 to 1,500 miles square, uh, as it is described, with his various gemstones, each of which represent character traits. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. Something I didn't mention. 
Remember I said that there were 12 different stones in the breastplate? If you look at the book of Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel 29, where it's describing Satan, Lucifer as he was then. He apparently had a beautiful robe, and on that robe, it had nine stones. Those nine stones correspond with the ones that are on the breastplate. But there were nine of them instead of 12, you see. When Israel divided after the time of uh, King Solomon, don't forget that Judah and Benjamin and a large portion of the tribe of Levi, they remained as the tribe of Judah. The rest of them became the tribe of Israel. What does the number nine symbolize in Bible numerology? The number nine in Bible numerology is the number for rebellion. You see. And it's interesting that the Beatles put out a record uh, many years ago with the back masking on it and all. And it was called Revolution Number Nine. What is Revolution Number Nine? It's rebellion, you see. And so we find that here, Lucifer, he already had gemstones. He was the highest of the angels. But he wanted to elevate himself to be king of the whole enchilada. And as a result, he lost everything. Anyway, that's just a side trip. The entrance into the city is made of pearl, which represents Christ. The Father and the Lamb are the temple in the city. There is no darkness in the city, but the day cycle still continues. Only those written in the Lamb's book of life will enter. Nothing abominable will be therein. Why? Because God does not want sin to arise the second time. He's had enough of sin. He gave Satan long enough to show what he could do. He says, I can rule better than God does. God says, all right, you've got your time. And what did he do? He made a mess of everything. And so God wants to be sure that those who come into the, the heavenly city have a character like the angels and like God himself that dwells there. Therein we'll find happiness. As we go into chapter 22, the next time, right now it's spent time talking about the holy city. When we get into chapter 22, that talks about the happy ever after. And that's what we look forward to. And that's the way the book will conclude.